0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode number five. We are going to talk some more today about the adventures of Telemachus. I have some more thoughts from the next chapter. But before we do, as always, we have some thinklings, business to tend to. That's right. Let's talk about some books.
1: Oh, yeah. Books I'll... in business.
0: He said it. <laughs> he did. I wasn't Every sure time. if he was going to do it this time.
1: He did it. But he did it. The
2: bookstore manager, Books in Business. I'll start off. So I'm still in um, uh, How to Read Slowly by James Sire. If you want to know a plan of attack for reading, the last two chapters of this book are very helpful. He gives a lot of thoughts about how to read fiction, nonfiction, that sort of stuff. It's very helpful but he gives three different types of reading, like purposes you might have. One is entertainment. So entertainment reading is, he says, right off, he says, reading solely for entertainment is not an unworthy use of time. (laughs) If you can justify relaxing beneath a shade tree in the summer, or touring the Black Hills, or seeing a good movie, or playing a game of chess, or watching television, you can justify reading for entertainment. There's something restorative about all these activities, and I would simply say that if you're reading for entertainment, it's still better than viewing something for entertainment because your mind is at work. It's it's like saying, I want to relax, I'm going to go for a run. Or I want to relax, I'm going to sit here for an hour. I, I, the run's probably physically more healthy. So anyways, he's, he's just going to make the argument that if you want to entertain yourself, it's not
1: always wrong to read. Okay, oh, yeah, it's not always wrong yeah. to read for yeah. entertainment.
2: You, yeah, that's the thing. And also, if you're going to entertain yourself... Wouldn't it, it be better to do something productive? Like if, if you really like physical fitness and entertainment for you is going to the gym, that's better than sitting on the couch, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're both like playing video games and going to the gym, if it's both entertainment, though, you're both, okay, go for it, Charlie. Okay, so obviously, obviously that's all, we got two more.
0: if you've got the option of read the book versus watch the movie for entertainment purposes, I am a strong proponent of read the book
2: first. Amen.
0: Because it ruins the book to watch the movie. Because no, you—if you watch the movie, you will never be able to unimagine what someone else has imagined for you. You will never be able to read *The Lord of the Rings* and not picture those actors. Yep, that's exactly right. I cannot right. read those books and mm-hmm. unhear the score. Yep. And so you—you you, so yes, if you're gonna read for entertainment, if you can justify it, reading for entertainment's better. But I think in our culture of entertainment, we are all in an abundance of entertainment. So. We should just, like, dial all entertainment down by, like, 5,000%. Yes,
2: and he's writing this in, like, 1970, so this is a ways back. The now, so this funny thing is that he says entertainment reading is not a wrong thing. He says the next category of reading is for information, reading for information. So read for entertainment, there's reading for information, and he says this. He says reading for information only is quite frankly, a prostitution of the art of reading. That's a pretty strong <laughs> term there. It is. I mean, that's like over the line. But his point is, I'll just go and read the paragraph. He says, nonetheless, we all find ourselves doing just that. I suggest that we do it as little as possible because it is demeaning to the enterprise of fully human thought. Facts have meaning and meaning exists only in a framework of presuppositions. Discovering the number of angels that can dance on the head of a pen entails a whole philosophy of being. Even the numbers in the telephone directory, directory, that's how old this book is, have meaning only in the larger context of Bell's telephone system and our society's nation. The point, he says, is we rarely get sheer information when we read. The newspaper reports on page one uh, that often shows the editorial slant of the reporter. So he simply says there's worldviews. So don't read just for information. Now, he finally says his, his best way of reading is this. He says, read for perspective. He says, most of my reading is reading for perspective. I rarely read anything, including Agatha Christie, for mere non-intellectual entertainment. That's because I enjoy paying attention to the subtleties of good writing. And when we do that, we get more than entertained. We pick up a writer's conception of life, his understanding of human nature, his view of the good, the true, and the beautiful. In short, we learn the author's worldview. And if the work we are reading is well-written, perhaps we even begin to experience his worldview vicariously. So I thought those three categories of reading were helpful. And to aim at the reading to get another perspective, I thought that was helpful. So I, I thought the book was really good, and I
1: would recommend it. Go ahead, Tim, you got a comment here. Just that he's defining entertainment there at the end. Yes. Yeah, I thought that was helpful. I probably should have let off with that, but... And that's not our popular definition of entertainment. Sure. So uh, the book that I'm going to present on today is a prayer book. It's called The Valley of Vision. Uh, It is not a book that you just read through. When I first was recommended The Valley of Vision, I picked it up and started reading. And I was like, what in the world's up with this thing? I can't stay awake. And so I set it down. I learned later that this book is not meant to just be read. It's meant to be prayed. There's a table of contents with a series of prayers. I usually keep this book with my Bible. I often will read a prayer or two at the end of my devotions after a Bible reading. It helps me to refocus my heart and my mind. Something about the renewal of the mind. The one on pride is one that I read on a regular basis. Let not pride swell my heart. My nature is the mire beneath my feet. The dust to which I shall return. Just even in that little statement, he talks about the depravity of man and how we are constantly drawn down into that mire. The poetry which he uses it resonates with the mind. You have to think through it. You can read this and just completely go blank, or you can think about it and be impressed by it and be renewed by it. Mm. The dust to which I shall return, to recollect, recollect again that I am but dust, and I will one day return to dust. To dust is very humbling. It is abasing, and it uh, destroys the pride within me. So um, I strongly recommend the Valley of Vision. It's uh, it's not easy reading. There are some other Puritan prayer books out there. This is a Puritan prayer book. I guess I should have qualified that. This one really helps make me think, and part of it's that old English. One day I'll get my sons each one of these. If there's an easier reading English one, it'd be great to get some younger kids reading it too.
0: Okay, my turn. So I know I'm going to open a can of worms here because we've already just kind of shot back and forth on this. So in addition to The Adventures of Telemachus, I just finished probably in the last two weeks. And I know this is not it's not reading according to the opinion of the table.
2: No, I think it is really <clears throat> on audiobook, of one person at the table. <clears> on <throat>
0: audiobook, I just finished the first two books in the series of the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Andy? So uh, the it's, Ransom Trilogy. The Space Trilogy, yep. yes. And um, and so I just finished uh, yesterday, or two days ago, uh, the second one, which is Perilandra. And I was making a comment that I was like, this is not... I don't. What am I doing? Like, the, I, and I have used this book. I, I listen to it before I go to bed. I set a sleep timer, and I never make it five minutes. <laughs> and
1: oh my!
2: Word. That's
0: not that's not the book's fault.
1: I You're mean, it's right. at the end of the
0: day, I'm tired. Yeah, <laughs> okay. it's not
1: the book's fault. It's your fault.
0: <laughs> oh <laughs> my! Well, okay. It's not even a book. It's an audiobook. Okay, maybe it's the maybe it's the narrator. But so obviously, there are the, the main characters ransom a lot of great ideas here. And we were just kind of talking about this before we hit record about how we disagree on the value of this book. I was like, man, I got so like I was like, I don't know what I was doing reading this book. Uh, I I thought the first one was so much more again, and I know I'm already I'm hearing my own pitfall. It was much more interesting, and I enjoyed oh. it more, which I know the 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 fault in those statements. But okay, give me give me your defense.
2: I would just say that. I am with you to an extent. I tried reading that book three times and I got one third of the way in and I quit. I'm like, what is going on here? And I had to, some of these books, you have to read about the book and then when you understand it, you can read it. So I I feel like I made your mistake and then I talked to a guy who really understood it well and then I read it and I thought it was awesome once I understood it. So. I would just say it's probably better than you realized, but I also don't think it's the best of the trilogy. I think that hideous strength is the best. That's my personal opinion. I think Dr. Little disagreed with me on that one.
0: Now, the the time of these, like the, the length is drastically different. Yes. So like from one to two to three, it's like they, they increase by double each time. Yes. Yeah. And and maybe that was what threw me off was like, it just wasn't the same flow to it. There's yeah. much more long dialogues and you really do have to think about what's happening. Yeah. Like to, to track the flow. Anyway, that's what I, I've been reading. <laughs> I would also say that one's
2: got a lot of imaginative stuff that's hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. That's part of that hideous strength that's easier is the context or the setting is a little easier to imagine.
0: But it is good to read things that are difficult.
1: Can we imagine it? Are we allowed to imagine it? Is it good good oh my to God. imagine Paralandra?
2: No not I no, see getting go that way. <laughs> No 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 that he in and, and, and the way the author wrote he actually he mentions the thing you're talking about and then he doesn't bring it up and it's a very tasteful way to do it so
1: Students, don't go song on this whole thing If you're
0: thing. wondering about what Dr. Little is referring to Just
1: let them read it don't tell them Yeah, yeah that's Just exactly what I
0: was going to say go read, read. the book yep. and speculate to what Dr. Little is referring to and then you can come and talk to him about it. Are we are we good with that? Le- Le- you, give us what what do you think about yeah, what do you think? Oh, it just made
1: me think about beauty. It made me think about, I mean, it made me think about sexuality, okay, and the curse, okay, and how it's connected to the curse because he's recreating the Garden of Eden. And so this man, how he's not struggling with that desire in a perfect world. Uh, and so just the, the theology behind all of that I found very fascinating and intellectually stimulating. Maybe it, that's what i find and yeah. how i define a good book
2: no i i, I would agree with you i think the mm. the most r- ingenious thing about it is that he's he's asking what if yeah and that was just oh fascinating
1: and then really on another plane you have this character who's uh, indwelt by indwelt by satan and so you have his battle with satan and then am i yeah. dealing with satan or am i dealing with this person And so this melding together theologically of this person with the being of Satan and how they become one, or do they become one, and then how they die. Mm. So it's just very interesting theologically.
0: Yeah, that that definitely is when, and remind me, it's uh, Weston, Ransom and Weston. And when Weston originally shows up, that's a little bit of a shock to you at that point in the book, and as the dialogue, as the conversation, kind of unfolds mm-hmm. between another the, the the green woman and Ransom and Weston, and you slowly, as the reader, start to recognize the spiritual forces mm-hmm. at work here. And and there's there's a pretty it's a pretty chilling moment when you start recognizing. Oh, hold on. Yeah. And there's the moment where Weston, who is controlled uh you know consumed by you know some force of darkness is just repeating ransom's name ransom
2: i know that's the like best what scene. nothing ransom ransom
0: ransom it's just like like antagonizing ransom and it's like does he know that he's doing that ransom. you know and but yeah anyway it is it is a very stimulating thoughtful book ransom what nothing <laughs> <laughs> bump said spike okay so let's move on to the adventures of telemachus Summarize that all to say, Lewis is always worth reading. It's always worth reading. Okay, so The Adventures of the Telemachus, we talked about this in the previous podcast. I'm going to move on to book two. Which, book two, it's, it's chapter two. There are three quotes that just like jumped off the page to me and they all kind of talk about different things. Sounds good. And I'm going to read the first two and just really quickly comment about them, why I liked them. And then I'm going to focus in on the third quote, which has a, again, as a spiritual principle, reminded me of some scripture. As the flow of the story goes, chapter one, they crash on this island. Calypso asks them for more or less a summary of how they got there. And so they're talking about their travels of they sail, they get captured, and then they, the person they get captured by thinks that they're this other person or don't believe them about who they are. So they get enslaved or thrown in jail. or da, 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 da. So it's kind of all these just bouncing around to different locations, different places, Phoenicians and Egyptians. And the details of that aren't super important. But so at the beginning of book two, he is uh, recognizing he's, he's looking at this king. And he's noticing how there are other forces surrounding royalty. And what he's going to do here is he's going to depict both virtue, wisdom, and vice, like flattery, as women. Mm. I'm going to read the quote. How dangerous a situation is royalty in which the wisest are often the tools of deceit. A throne is surrounded by a train of subtlety and self-interest. Integrity retires because she will not be introduced by importunity or flattery. Hmm. Virtue, conscious of her own dignity, waits at a distance until she is sought. But vice and her dependents are impudent and fraudful, insinuating and officious, skillful in dissimulation and ready to renounce all principles and to violate every tie when it becomes necessary to the gratification of the appetites of a prince. And so a great summary here, again, getting into the desires of someone, but around the throne, it's these people consumed by these different desires that are then personified as these two women. What's so interesting about that is, hey, the Bible does that too. If you read through (laughs) Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon personifies wisdom and folly as two women. Hmm. And in fact, in a very similar way. And so that's, I've preached a sermon on this, Mm. how to find the perfect woman. It's the best laugh I've ever gotten from a crowd because I'm a single man. It's a good sermon. What what do I know about how to find a perfect woman? Uh, You know, really nothing. But anyway, so that's why I like that first quote because it personifies virtue, wisdom, and folly as these women. And uh, it's a stimulating way to think about these virtues, like Mm -hmm. as if they're Uh these women Mm -hmm. and how a very virtuous, wise woman would present herself to a king and how a, you know, the opposite of someone, of flattery or uh, impudent, fraudful woman would just promote themselves. And, And that's what he's depicting there, which is really interesting. Quote number two, and this gets into, as the story flows, Telemachus is enslaved And he's sent off to be a shepherd in the desert. He's separated from his mentor, if you remember from last chapter, separated from his mentor. And there he is in the desert and he tries to cultivate his mind. And what he does is he starts looking for books. It's really interesting. He finds a priest of Apollo who gives him books. And that's kind of a big part of the story and the flow. But here's a quote. This is Telemachus like kind of meditating and speaking about his situation. Says happier those that have lost their relish for tumultuous pleasure, and are content with the soothing quiet of innocence and retirement. Happier they whose amusement is knowledge and whose supreme delight is in the cultivation of the mind. Wherever they shall be driven by the persecution of fortune, the means of employment are still with them, and that weary listlessness which renders life insupportable to the voluptuous and the lazy, those who let their desires control them, is unknown to those who can employ themselves by reading opposite to the vice of voluptuous desire and laziness is someone who's intentional in cultivating their mind he learns that in the desert and he actually becomes kind of like the the chief of the shepherds and he starts teaching all these other people about this it's really interesting so two good quotes there the personification of virtue and vice and about Mm. reading good books to cultivate the mind combating the desires of my flesh quote number three so this is At the end of the book here, the chapter, it's book two, the end of the chapter, he gets freed from his slavery as a shepherd in the desert. He comes back into, I believe it's Egypt, and the king that was really wise, he was a good king, and Mentor made a lot of comment about that the early part of the chapter, he has died, and his son is taking over, and instead of freeing Telemachus, he re-enslaves him, if I'm catching the flow right. Then what happens is because he's a poor ruler, some of his own subjects call upon, I think it's the Phoenicians, but I'm not sure. He calls on some of the enemies, hey, come help us overthrow this guy. And they come and they like ransack the town. And it's commenting about as this battle is taking place, he's surprised these ships show up and here's, here's this really stupid young king who's got no clue in the world trying to defend the city which, you know, there's some great in Ecclesiastes that talk about that too. <laughs> but anyway, so here's the quote. It says, and he's commenting on this young, dumb king. Like a high-spirited horse that had never been broke, he was precipitated upon danger by his courage, and his fore was not directed by wisdom. He knew not how to retrieve an error, nor to give orders with sufficient exactness. He neither foresaw the evils that threatened him, nor employed the troops he had to the greatest advantage, though he was in the utmost need of more. Not that he wanted abilities, for his understanding was equal to his courage, but he had never been instructed by adversity. Instructed. And it goes on there to talk about how his father, being a rich king, and then this is in contrast to Telemachus and Mentor,
1: Hmm. in
0: contrast to having someone who pointed out the problems of the voluptuous, desirous lifestyle consumed by riches. This young man was led astray by the riches of his father, was never brought into control of those desires. And here it was, because of that upbringing, he's being overthrown, he's putting all these people in danger, he had never been taught, instructed by adversity. So the thought that popped into my mind was, what does it mean to be instructed by adversity? Like something difficult about my life might actually teach me wisdom. And so two texts popped into my mind. And we'll start in good biblical fashion with the Old Testament.
1: Amen.
0: (laughs) Hearty amen, no eye roll from Mr. (laughs) Premodern across the table. Deuteronomy 8, there's a section at the beginning of Deuteronomy 8 where the people of Israel is reminded, people of Israel are reminded, That God led them for 40 years through the wilderness with a very specific purpose. I led you through the wilderness to humble you, to test you, to show you what was in your heart. Here was a difficulty divinely produced to instruct them about their own desire. Exactly what this young dumb king didn't understand and exactly what destroyed him. Then the New Testament passage that goes right along with that is James chapter one, Hmm. counted all joy, Brethren, when you fall into trials, knowing that the test, the adversity, actually produces something within you. And so here is the sovereignty of God at work in my adversities meant to humble me to the Spirit of God to produce the fruit of God. And so as I, you know, again, this this is not, it's Catholic in, or excuse me, Christian in name. It's written by a Catholic man. He doesn't understand probably the same theology of the fruit of the Spirit that we would. But he understands something about how desires will subvert the apprehension of virtue and wisdom. And here, what was the means by which this young man did not apprehend wisdom? It was that he lacked training through adversity. Hmm. So, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Any thoughts come to your mind?
1: Training through adversity. Proverbs. I would say that
2: I think growing up, I found myself in the situation where, I would pray, Lord, change me, make me look more like your son. I would want to grow and I would pray to grow. And then when the trial came, I didn't see it as the way God wanted to grow me. And I would say, Lord, please take this trial away. And it's almost like, because I didn't understand what you shared about Deuteronomy and James, here's God answering the prayer and I'm saying, no, 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 I don't want that God, but I don't realize that I'm contradicting. So I do think that like in Christianity today, there, is a, there can be times where we miss, we forget that God doesn't just teach us. He does teach us through reading the Bible. I'm not saying that. But a lot of times it's he's putting us in a situation where our heart is being revealed through adversity and I think that's an, I, I would say that as I interact with people, that's not always a commonly understood thing. I Some of the biggest lessons of my own life I've learned, it, it hasn't been through, and I'm not saying don't say the Bible at all when I'm saying this, but sometimes you've studied the Bible and the way you learn it is by walking through the difficult waters. And that's when God teaches you. And I, I just appreciate what you're saying.
1: I remember in college, somebody said, you know, you get wisdom by going through trials. I'm like, well, I don't like trials. So I quit praying for wisdom oh (laughs) so that's the uh other that's the other side Mm -hmm. of that coin where well played well well then really what am i praying to be a fool a fool Mm -hmm. okay to remain simple so then when the adversity does come i'm just like the king in telemachus and i'm not prepared to fight the battle so uh both pits are uh holes that we can fall into and so this idea of uh as we have our closing thought from the scriptures, it's the same idea as found in the book of Proverbs. And uh, in the book of Proverbs, if you do a word study of two words, the one is instruction. The word instruction occurs in Proverbs 1-2, to know wisdom and instruction. It occurs again at the end of verse 7, fools despise wisdom and instruction. This word is often translated as discipline. And discipline is more of the result Instruction is the means. It's how you get the discipline. I prefer the translation instruction. I'm going to kind of walk you through that a little bit because it's how we learn. This word instruction is connected to another word you want to study out in uh, the book of Proverbs, tochachat, okay, rebuke. In Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 22, we have wisdom speaking and she says, Turn at my rebuke then in Proverbs one twenty five, she states again, people would have none of my rebuke. So people are not listening to her. And then in verse 30, she states, they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Now, when we think of a rebuke, we think of a father scolding a son. We think of um, reproof. Okay. All scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for instruction, for reproof. Reproof, that would be that idea of rebuke. And of course, rebuke is not something that we desire. It's not something that we like. But what does rebuke do? It instructs us. In Proverbs chapter 3, we have the combination of these two Hebrew words. We have instruction and we have rebuke. In Proverbs 3 verse 11, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord is how the new king james translates it but the word there is instruction god is teaching you and then the next line states nor detest his correction mm. okay that's the word rebuke these two words are combined in this verse how does god teach us he teaches us by correction through trials so many people they read through proverbs and they say oh proverbs look wisdom is crying out she's screaming out at the street corners and whatever else. But if you think about it, well, how does Proverbs actually scream at us? How do we actually hear her? And the answer is through the trials. That's how we hear Lady Wisdom. That's how God corrects us. The question is, are we going to listen? Are you going to turn at her rebuke? Are you going to be instructed? Or are you going to say, no, and I don't want to learn, and I'm just going to remain simple and then fail in the day of adversity? Or are you going to, what was the other one I forgot, the other pitfall? Oh, not recognize that that's oh, yeah. how God mm-hmm. teaches you, is yeah. teaching you through the trials.
0: What's so hard about the trial is, even if even if I'm, you know, from my perception, my perspective, I haven't done anything wrong, I haven't done, emphasis on done, haven't done outwardly anything wrong, mm-hmm. I've restrained my desire to say something I know I'm not supposed to say, or restrain myself from doing what I know I'm not supposed to do, but I know within me that desire is present. My flesh is rising up within me. What's so hard is that the trial reveals those thoughts, those attitudes, and those motives. And I have the responsibility, indwelt by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And that requires humbling myself to the rebuke of the trial. And Mm. I I often say, Mm. Some of you listeners our students, you've heard me say, the hardest thing God asks me to do every day is humble myself. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that is when he confronts, he rebukes my desires through difficulty. When I don't get what I want.
2: The only other thing I would add to this is I remember learning this principle that trials are what God used to sanctify me. And I thought, I always thought, okay, it's a one-to-one thing. So if lying is, is if being deceptive is the problem, then the trial will come and I will be asked to tell the truth sometimes God puts you through a different kind of trial that just (laughs) humiliates, humbles you. It humbles. It's it's like Job where he's like, he's kind of smashing me. And in a weird disconnected way, that's what the spirit uses to show you. Like it's weird. It, sometimes the trial doesn't seem like if I was assigning a trial to you, I would assign you this, but sometimes God knows best. And it's something that might seem out of left field and you might have no It's something that you didn't do. You didn't feel like you did. It wasn't like you were being irresponsible and this thing came on you. So I would also say that when you go through a trial, you can't always, you know, you don't always know right away what it is, but you just seek to be faithful. You humble yourself Mm -hmm. and that's what God uses.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.